1: Producer, director of the animated X-Men, Captain Planet, G.I. Joe, and the Fantastic Four. And you're listening to The Marvelous with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson.
2: Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode, and I love saying this every single time, we get into introducing our special guest... We want to tell you all at home how you can get a hold of us on them, thar, social medias. Go ahead. Do it. First off, go on Facebook at facebook.com slash themarvelists. Give us a like on there. Give us a follow. Give us a whatever. Give, a, give us a round of applause or applesauce even as it says on the sign. No, wait, it doesn't. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at the Marvelists. Give us a like, give us a, or whatever, give a, a follow, I guess. Yeah, that's what the kids nowadays say. They follow, follow, go, go follow that person. <laughs> okay, Elton John. Now, also, you can find us individually on social media. Go on Facebook uh, for myself at facebook.com slash Peter Melnick Podcaster on Instagram and Twitter. At Peter Melnick. And there's only one place, like Reckless Eric says, in the whole wide world that you can find Eddie Wilson. And that's on Instagram at Eddie9193. And it wasn't Goodbye Yellow Brick Road.
0: Gosh, darn it. It was The Wizard of Oz.
2: Oh, well, I know. I just wanted to make an Elton John reference. God. Jeez. Jeez Louise Simonson, Eddie. <laughs> and Walter. You can also find us on a wide variety of streaming platforms, including iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, SoundCloud, etc., etc. Oh, Spotify. But I mentioned earlier just now, because I'm botching the intro today, but here we are. You can find us on iTunes, where you can rate, review, subscribe, share that on social media. And Eddie's favorite part of the episode is coming up
0: right now. No, it's not. No, it's not
2: five star of the show because much like the ice cream machine at mcdonald's four stars and below just does not work yeah now eddie we are joined on the other end of the tin cannon string with someone who is a part of my childhood he is a man responsible for his involvement on x-men the animated series fantastic four among many others ladies and gentlemen we are joined with larry houston larry good afternoon as we are recording in the afternoon
1: Good afternoon, everyone.
0: And thank you again. This being 616, isn't that an Earth term in comic book lore? Oh, I do my God! believe gosh, it is. Right. <laughs> yes. I think and that's
1: the Marvel Universe. Yeah. yeah.
2: It's, a, it's a rather marvelous day. That's yeah, right. We're all here. What else do you want? Yes. And since today is a marvelous day, we are joined with Larry. Larry. How did you get into the Marvel universe as a fan?
1: Well, for me to get in, I started way back in uh, when I was a kid back, you know, when I was a single single digit child back in elementary school. Um that's back, you know, back in the 60s and I was I've been a fanboy ever since I found my first uh, Fantastic Four book. I went to a a bar, my mom took me to a barbershop and I found these you know, stack of magazines and it had a Marvel comic there with uh, I think it was Fantastic Four number 54 something or 52. It's where the Silver Surfer was fighting the thing and I picked it up and started reading it. But because the top third was ripped off, I had no idea what the hell I was... I had no idea what it was. Mm. And that's what that was my very first Marvel comic book. And from that point forward, I just started collecting those books like crazy. And... uh
2: and Let's you started a with little... a Jack Kirby, no less.
1: Yeah, I, that was my first introduction. The artwork, um, the, the storytelling, it just blew me away. And um, with Stanley's dialogue, I had to have a dictionary constantly nearby, because <laughs> they would use words I had never heard of before. And I was trying to understand what, they was, what, what it was all about.
2: I mean, in the interest of fairness, at least it wasn't a Thor issue, because forsooth, and so forth.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, that would have been even far worse, you know. Um, but for me, uh, I, I've been a fanboy, I guess, since I was in elementary school, some, you know, five, seven years old, and going forward from there. And um, I think being a fanboy and becoming a director in animation, I had, I, it was, I, I tell a lot of people in jest, that, you know, knowing all this Marvel trivia was probably very useless in life until they put me in charge of a Marvel show. <laughs> and from that point forward, I knew, I knew the show better than any of the writers at that time because I was just, you know, it was all in my DNA of knowing everything that Stan and, and Roy Thomas and the rest of them had written um, about these characters. And so I knew exactly what motivated each character. Who liked who, who didn't like who, the brother, the sister, the you know, I had all this stuff in my head. And a lot of the writers would actually come to me and ask me about this character that character. And I just, you know, I'd let them know everything I knew. And um, when I was working as a director on, on the X-Men, you know, the Internet didn't exist at the time. So I, I physically brought all my comic books of the X-Men to work and I would Xerox pages, key pages off, to the writers and artists, so that to make sure they got the story right, so.
2: And one thing about, you know, you mentioned being a fanboy of the characters and the stories and whatnot, I believe you're the one that's responsible for like sneaking in different characters into the X-Men animated series episodes, like just random, you know, I think, if it wasn't for you, we never would have seen Deadpool on our TV screens for the first time in 1992
1: yeah and um the sto- there's a story behind that in that when i was growing up in the 60s um, marvel comics was, distribution was really under the control of uh, uh, dc comics at the time called national periodic publications and they kept marvel's print line print run you know really small you can only do x amount of titles so stan would i remember this vividly it was a story of I was reading about Spider-Man and Thor went through one scene and there's a little piece of dialogue, but at the bottom, Stan wrote, if you want to see where Thor is going by issue, you know, tales of whatever. And for me as a kid, I was like, wow, this is a connected universe, you know, because I, I had been reading DC comics and that didn't happen over there. Everything was pretty, you know, siloed away. And so when I did the X-Men, I wanted to try and, put that enthusiasm of, like, seeing stuff into the X-Men. So early on, I tried to put Spider-Man, like, as a background prop somewhere that uh, wouldn't interfere with the storytelling, but you'd see them. And when it went through the system, they told me, no, you can't use it. And I went, why? And they never gave me a, a reason, so I, I said, okay, fine. There was another episode called uh, Slave Island where The writers wrote all these mutants were being captured on Genosha, and they had all these collars. Um, But the writers wrote Mutant 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 because they they did not know Marvel mythology at the time. So, again, I took my books, put it on a Xerox machine. I told my designers, okay, make this The Blob, make this North Star, make this Richter, make this uh, Sunfire. But I kept the original names. Mutant 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. And I submitted it into the system. Nobody said anything. Mm-hmm. I said, cool. So every time I put a, a, a cameo or Easter egg into the show, they were never called by their real names. And that's how I was able to get all those things into the show.
0: <laughs> if, if I understand, I, I was going to just back up a second before we go ahead, and I'm going to forget anyway, Larry. I, I think I heard you say, if I, if I heard it right, Thor ran through his, or came through a scene or a panel in a Spider-Man comic book? Did I get that right?
1: Correct. I think it was, you know, the Ditko panel back in those days. And I he zipped through the scene. And I went, wow. As a kid, it, just, it was just very exciting like, to read that.
0: Yeah, like, where'd that come from? Because I don't recall, first of all, seeing that in a comic book, so I don't go back or have seen the real early stuff. But I do remember, and I think it was maybe through the 70s or part of it, too, that on the bottom pages of the comic book, it would have a slug line, if you want to call it that, of just uh, you know, read what happens in Incredible Hulk one eighty, and guest starring <laughs> yeah. the Rhino. Th- those little yeah. mini ads—that's what I thought of right away. There, yeah,
1: yeah, and that's that to me. That's that, you know, that was exciting. And you know, fast forwarding to when I became in charge of the show, I had a gut, I didn't you know, I had a gut feeling that um, if I could replicate. That type of excitement I felt when I was like five, six, or seven years old and put it into the X-Men, I was hopeful that the audience would pick up on it. And specifically, um, when I would add cameos, I only added it if it didn't detract from the original story. I didn't want people looking at this character wondering, is this part of the original story? The fans would be able to pick it up, But the regular audience would just think of it like a fire hydrant or just like a a book. It it wouldn't mean anything to them, but it would mean something to the fans who would pick up on it. And that's what I tried to do with those cameos.
2: And you didn't just sneak in mutants with the cameos. You also snuck in characters such as Doctor Strange, Thor, and if I'm correct, in the original script. What were they called to to differentiate the names because they couldn't say the name exactly?
1: Well, I, the, I did the first Black Panther, and he was African mutant number three. That was his name. Um, Dr. Strange might have been a mutant magician. Um, Thor, I think, was a – I always put the word mutant in the word somewhere, so I think he was a mutant Norseman. Hmm. Um, <laughs> um, I had the wa- – I remember having a watch. I called him the an, an, a mutant alien watcher, or mutant uh, – al- oh, mutant alien, I think is what it was. So I just, I just used that name all over the place. and see, a lot of the stuff I submitted to for approval was all black and white. So nothing was in color. Mm. And so the, whoever approved or disapproved anything, when they saw it go across our desk, and it said mutant number five did not raise a bell. I made the mistake the first time. I, I wrote Spider-Man, and you can see it, Spider-Man. And I, they went, I think it had to do with contracts more than anything else. That's my guest today, but back then they never—they didn't tell me anything. Because uh, later on, the X Men were a guest star in the Spider-Man series once they got the contracts all done. Uh, my my friend uh, John Simper was directing on that show, so he was able to write, do a good, a very good crossover, and use my voice actors as the you know in his show. So that was a real legitimate crossover right there.
2: Now, in 1992, X-Men the Animated Series debuts in the Fox Kids Network. And 1993, again, X-Men the Animated Series is the only animated series with the Marvel property. 1994 rolls along, however, and we end up getting Spider-Man the Animated Series, Fantastic Four, Iron Man, uh, what else, I, uh, Incredible Hulk, all in one year you end up having five television series involving the Marvel Universe. And am I missing any others? Because I feel like there was one more.
1: Uh, You've might you, you probably done better research than I have. I think that you could be right. That's, that sounds about right.
2: Yeah, because I know in 98, Silver Surfer came around, but it's like, wh-
1: why was that where
2: there's a year of just one series and then boom?
1: I, my, my feeling is that the X-Men... Um, made all the Marvel properties very, uh, uh, you know, made them made them all very hot, and based upon the X-Men, then everything else, you know, got put on the air. Um, I was I was the director of the X-Men from uh, year one to year four, and I got recruited to leave the X-Men. I didn't do X-Men. I didn't do the X-Men fifth season, the last one. I, I got recruited away to work on the Fantastic Four second season because the first season was it turned out so bad, and they needed they wanted to do another. Back then, when you syndicated a show, you needed at least 26 episodes, so they didn't really like the first 13. So they they wanted me to do the second 13, and I agreed to do it only if they allowed me to do the original. You know, they would not interfere with me. And uh, I could do some of the original storyline, And so when we came to that agreement, that's when my assistant director um, took over for what I was doing. And I went on to work at New World. I think it was New World Pictures to do the second season of Fantastic Four. Um, it was uh, Frank Frank Squalachi was my uh, assistant director when I left. He took over the X-Men for season five.
2: But, but Larry, the first season of the uh, Fantastic Four, the first episode alone has a cameo by Dick Clark. I mean, come on, that's the pinnacle of television right there.
1: <laughs> oh, God. I, I, I remember seeing that. Now, I saw it's the torch on fire fighting the mariner underwater. I mean, right there, that tells you everything is wrong with the beginning of that, that that first 13 episodes. It was like, oh, Lord. <laughs>
2: As we lovingly say on the show, though, we can explain it with one way. A wizard did
1: it. <laughs> yeah. The only, the only thing I couldn't do with the second season of Fantastic Four is that I couldn't, like, undo the damage from the first season. So I had to do stories that they hadn't touched, villains they hadn't touched. So, you know, we, we did the Inhumans, um, Galactus, Eagle, the Living Planet, stuff like that.
2: You mentioned the Inhumans, and for myself, the Inhumans are such a hard character group to get into. And for some reason, I I can read... I'm going to be planning on going through a massive reread slash first ever read, for most parts, of the Kirby Lee Fantastic Four. And one of the things about it is when I got to the, the Inhumans originally, I just couldn't connect with them. What, in your opinion, is a way that they clicked for you?
1: um what because I, I when I, I read it when it was fresh off the stands when I you know I was a little kid when I bought it off the stands and so um, what clicked for me was here's a uh, you know a variation on like a group of like the x men only this is a different group of characters in a hidden land somewhere in the mountains with these cool characters you know the gorgon that can hit a us- you know, make earthquakes and stuff, and Karnak, um, it was the, it was, a com- it was just a combination of uh, seeing new, f- fresh blood for me as a kid that, uh, that I liked, and I think, um, it's hard to say what clicked for me, ex- except that, you know, I like Black Bolt's costume, it was really cool, you could fly around, and when they... You know, when they got when they explained what his powers were, he, you know, he says a whisper he can blow up a city. I was like, oh wow, that's it was a different concept for me. Um, the powers, you know, um, that they that they had, and uh, so you know, I guess as a kid it's kind of like the X Men, but it's a different set of rules that they wrote that Stan and, and uh, Jack wrote. It just appealed to me as a kid. I the costuming was the main thing. I think I loved the design of the the characters. They didn't they, they looked fresh at the time, and uh, when they when they got around to doing some of the backstory, I think in the back it was like backup stories in Thor, and they would start explaining who are the humans, they're, they're they're connected with the Cree and they got the Terrigen myths and all that stuff. And it was like, oh wow, this stuff. Is nothing like I thought it was. Mm. You know, they're not—they're not mutants, but they—you know—they're something different. Um, and uh, all that stuff, I guess, for me.
2: And with you know the Inhumans in recent memory, they kind of, sort of, not really debuted in the Marvel Cinematic Universe through the Inhumans television series. That the less said, the better. But and okay. yeah. innuendo is they might revamp them. They might reboot everything. And if it was up to you, we'll get to this other part too, but how would you introduce the Inhumans into the Marvel Cinematic Universe? And while we're at it, because we always ask this question, how would you introduce the Fantastic Four into the Marvel Cinematic Universe?
1: Wow. Good questions. Um, as far as the Inhumans, um, there was a point in their history where they were hidden away behind the Negative Zone dome, which is virtually indestructible, hidden in the Himalayas. I mean, at some point, you could just, there could be a storyline where they they figure out a way. I, I think the story was, I think, Black Boat screams and he literally destroys the entire city, but he, he destroys the barrier, so now they they have access to the outside world. I mean, that's one way you could you could introduce in humans, and you know that would explain why why weren't they involved with like Thanos and all the rest of the stuff they set up around the world that in the last you know 10 years of cinematic movies. Um, that's one way. Uh, for me, the other way, like introducing the FF, um, you there you could just you know, and I think there's part of the storylines where the, the Fantastic Four were like. Out, I think they're. Uh, I'm not sure what writer wrote it, but they've been out in the universe, you know, going here and there and there and here. They were nowhere near on Earth, and you could do a story where they're, you know, a character or a situation leads them to to find a way back to Earth. That yeah, uh, and that's how you could bring them back to the universe that they were never, they were here, they were gone. People forgot about them because they've been. You know, out of sight, out of mind, and um, now they're coming back, and people have forgotten about them. And uh, I like that. Idea. I mean, that's one. Yeah, that's one way you could do it. Um, the the character, I mean, it could any way. I mean, you could have Captain Marvel find them. You could have uh, a number of different entities, Doctor Strange or anybody, could could come upon them. Uh, by accident, um, they could even be stuck in the microverse. I mean, it, they could be stuck in a in a, the Ant Man. What they said up the, the microverse, they could have been. You know, the, you, you could put them somewhere where they're out of sight, out of mind for a long period of time.
2: Now, in regards to the X Men, going back over to the uh, the X universe and whatnot, how did you get? the role of being involved with X-Men, the animated series. What is your X origin?
1: <laughs> well, my, my origin to the X-Men starts way back. Um, when I first got the job to work at um, Marvel Productions with Stan Lee and Margaret Lesh, who was there, she was the CEO of the company. Um, I had myself, Will Minio, Rick Holberg you're talking about three fanboys. We're all working at Marvel Productions, and we've been trying to push the X-Men onto television as a series. And we were all working on Spider-Man's Amazing Friends. We were doing storyboards. And whenever they had a section that was dealing with the X-Men, I'd grab that part of the script and try and do my best to, to, to make that section of the script really exciting to try and uh, promote it with the networks. And when, when, they, when Marvel finally got they found, I'll say, quote-unquote, found money to do the pilot of Pride of the X-Men. The three of us were all involved as co-directors, and we tried to do our best to create that, to create interest in creating an X-Men show back in the mid to late 80s. And um, so we we did our best. Um, We had compromises that we didn't like. I mean, we wanted to do the Sentinels. They wanted to... Sell toys, so we had to do the Magneto and the Evil Mutants. Um, one investor wanted it to be uh, Wolverine to be Canadian, I mean uh, Australian, oh. because of a uh, crocodile Dundee. So the voice—that's how come that voice change happened. And uh, but we, you know we were willing to live with compromises as long as we, we could just sell the show. We knew it was a good show to put on the air. Well, we did it. There was no interest. It was only three networks, CBS, NBC, ABC. So it kind of like it was a pilot and went away. Fast forward from six years from that pilot, my boss, Margaret Lesh, became the CEO of Fox Kids Network. And she called Will and called me up and called Rick up and said, hey, look, she's in charge. She could greenlit a show. We're going to put the X-Men on the air. Because of her, we got, you know, she gave us the shot to do the X-Men series. And um, and so we knew this is what we wanted to do. And we had to, there's a book by Eric Lee Wall um, where he he recounts all the little many small battles we had to try and get them. They wanted us to turn it into either Super Friends or Scooby-Doo. And we were fighting, fighting, fighting all these little battles along the way to try and know this is not what the X-Men, we want to do. We want to do something that's more elevated than just the, the, the kid demographics. We wanted to write more adult stuff. And we had, we had a long fight with that. There was one fight where we all had to threaten to quit before anything had been written, you know, with what they wanted to do. And we, they backed off. But um, we had to fight to get that, the show that you guys saw on the air. Because we, based upon the, you know, what, what happened with Pride of the X-Men, we didn't want that to happen again. We knew what we wanted to do, so we had to fight for it. Even if it meant you know, walking away from it.
2: Now, when you mentioned that you weren't there for the last season of the X-Men, one of the things I kind of noticed, you mentioned that they wanted the show to be like a Scooby-Doo or a Super Friends kind of show. Yeah. I kind of get like the impression that like in the final season, like the network, you know, with people like yourself leaving, the network got their way eventually and did stuff like that with like you know the Jubilees, fairy tale uh, adventures, and whatnot. It that makes that makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, I wasn't there. My um, yeah, you know, the other the other my other friend Frank was there, so I I don't have direct knowledge as to why everything went in a different direction. Um, I know that they lost the original animation team overseas because of their procrastination. And so that was another reason why the the look of the show changed because they went with another studio. Basically, if I remember right, uh, Saban was the company in charge of the show. Um, But Saban never got, he never got any money other than uh, producing the show like he didn't he didn't have any of the back-end money like toys and t-shirts and all the rest of that stuff and I know for what I remember the last season of, of the x-Men um, he negotiated a contract so that he got um, he got more money for it but in, uh, for producing the show so he went and found a studio that would charge less money so he could make more money so the look of the show changed because you know, his bottom line. And as far as, that's what I know production-wise. Now, story-wise, why the stories changed, I, I don't know. That's something more of um, Eric, you can ask Eric Lewall about that, exactly what happened with that, with the direction that they were choosing. Eddie?
0: I saw that at least in the first half of the first season, Larry, your title was, at least came up in the opening credits, line director know did that evolve into a straight up director or did you just have that straight specific role the whole time you were there and what's if there is a difference between a outline director and just a director
1: um in the first season that's pretty much credited with my lack of knowledge <laughs> what? of my the title I should have taken the title that i that i that I was doing basically I was doing all the work I was the director of the show from the beginning to from season one to season four I did all the work I was in charge of every Every aspect of production, meaning you know, like assigning of storyboards, looking at scripts, uh, art directing the backgrounds, the props, character designs, turns. Um, yeah, you know, I had that. I had that job for doing all that kind of work for four years, but I didn't have the right title. They gave me line producer. And that's that's actually more of a um, live action term. You kind of have a producer and a line producer, the guy who actually goes out there and you know is doing the work. And so
0: hmm.
1: it wasn't until later I got the I got the title to to what they call Chiron. I got them to re Chiron and revise my title to producer director or director.
0: It sounds like too that now were there with the three no oh, with the three of you the three of you that got picked to do this and you're all fanboys like you mentioned Larry that I, I was thinking two
1: words dream job. <laughs> oh, you, you nailed it. That was, I mean, my, my first dream job was to work at Marvel Productions, and I'm working with Stan Lee. I'm working with the guy. I read all of his books, and I'm working with Stan. I, could, I see him every day for the last oh, about 10 years. I would go into the studio, and I just talk to Stan every day. That was a, that was a dream job. Um, the other one was, um, there's, a, there's another um, company called Ruby Spears. And they were doing a series called Thundar. And so I was doing freelance storyboards for them at the same time I was working at Marvel. And so I got a chance to, to meet Gil Kane, Alex Tull, um, Jack Kirby, and just talk to them like I'm talking to you right now. It's like a, um, a regular person. But these were the icons of my childhood. And um, that was like another dream moment for me. Um, you know, and then you know, fast forwarding to doing the X-Men. Yeah, that X-Men has been the one shot I've been trying to get. I had been trying to get on the air ever since I started at Marvel Productions in the 80s. And and to have Margaret have the she had the confidence to assign me as a director because she knew how much I I I love the show. I love the characters, and I had all of this amassed uh, Marvel comic book lore in my head that I knew exactly what worked, what didn't work. And and I knew all the relationships. I mean, the writers would come to me and I'd explain it. You know, this is this, this is that. You know, like mut- kids' siblings that are mutants, they use their powers against each other. It doesn't work. You know, so we worked that into a couple of episodes. I think it was Black Tom and Banshee or um, Havoc versus uh, Cyclops. You know, that sibling powers don't work against each other. So the little things like that I was able to sprinkle through and to make sure everything followed the mythology as I knew it. And um, I would also, sometimes I would catch maybe descriptions of what, like, storm flies up into the air and she spins to create, you know, a storm, a windstorm. And I would catch it in the script level and just take a pin and scratch it out. And then just write what she should do. She flies up, lightning, you know, cloud, you know, the normal routine. So I was able to catch a lot of um, mistakes or errors in early on in, in production. And also when the storyboard guys would turn, turn in their storyboards, I would go through the entire board, and if something was off concept, I would just redraw it myself to make sure it followed the books. As, exactly, as, as close as I can make it.
0: That just tells me right away that you got to be all in and you got to know your stuff before you go into it because somebody who doesn't know is going to just mess up really considerably and be so off with the characteristics of each character.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I was able to catch a lot of stuff before. Like a script, the script is maybe 40, 30 pages for a half hour show. And when it gets storyboarded, We're talking like 300 pages, and so if I can catch a problem when it's only 30 pages, (laughs) it's a lot less work for me to do. Um, There, there are some sequences though that were um, was a lot of work, but it was worth it. Um, There's a series called, uh, there's an episode called Time Future. That's part one, part two. And when I got the scripts, I got scripts within a week of each other. So I sent out script one to like three different artists, script two out to, out to three other artists. And then when it came back, part two, is supposed to be a re it's a time loop repeating what was in in part one. Nothing in part two matched one. Hmm. So the entire battle sequence between Bishop and cable and the X-Men, I had to redraw that from scratch. And, um, so it, it, that took a lot. Luckily, that took a long time, and luckily I had a staff of artists that I would just sketch it out, draw it up, and they'd finish it. So I was kind of like a penciler in a book. I would re-pencil the sequence. So whenever you see it in part two, you'll notice it's almost like a minute, minute and a half. There's no dialogue because I, I, I couldn't get anything re-recorded, but that, that chunk of time it was all me re-storyboarding the entire sequence all over again. And then having it hook up with the previous time loops episode, what what happened in time in the first timeline? Oh, and that's one thing at the end of the first time, time futures part one. It wasn't it was not written that um, apocalypse rolls out of the house and kills the X Men. I made that up, knowing you know they're going to come back in part two, but I wanted to I wanted to set the stakes up really high and uh so he he killed the x-men and so that made the stakes in part two that much more um important little things like that i would i would add little pieces like that you know then you know deadpool stuff like that adding other characters here and there to the series
2: now in regards to your involvement with the characters of the x-men who was one of the first x-men that really caught your attention and when you started working on the show, you were like, I need to do something with this character because I love them that much.
1: I, um, I guess there was two characters like that for me. Um, Wilburn's obviously he's the badass of the group, but I always thought beast and Cyclops needed something more. So like with the beast at some point in the series, I gave him a – he's more of the, you know, uh, smart, technical, scientific guy. I gave him a a high-tech backpack where he could uh, use – he could have something handy where he could analyze stuff on the go, and also it would also have offensive weaponry so he could actually participate in the fight. Because mostly, if you're talking about strength, that's all rogue. Rogue can beat the crap out of most things. So um, you know she's way stronger than Beast. So Beast needed something else to participate in the adventure. Um, with Cyclops, I tried to give him some more, like upfront displays within his visor, things that would be natural, like you know, like locator things and you know, more more high-tech stuff in you know in his visor stuff. Um, those two, those two um, are the two that I. I can think of right now Um uh, Wolverine. was, you know, all I, had, once we had, um, robots for him to cut into, Hey, that was, that made the show because he, he, it in the morning, he couldn't stab anybody. Um, but he could punch ops in the gut once <laughs> we got, you know, we had to, that was a lot of negotiations because we had to negotiate, you know, especially you know, with Eric, with, uh, broadcast standards and practices, that we had to convince him that this was um, how he dealt with grief. And so we told him this was only going to happen once. And so, he, you know, when he walks over and punches him, he's really angry. And he decks Cyclops with a gut shot. Hmm. And, um, I mean, from, with, that, with that moment, I think that more than anything else showed that this was not super friends. That these characters didn't always get along. It's a it's a huge dysfunctional family that are together basically because the outside world doesn't like them. They hate them, and so they they're they're together uh, against the world.
2: And with that gut punch, by the way, did you ever expect that moment to? be repeated all of these many 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 years later where you you know i I imagine a number of people over the years have tweeted to you that gif of him just walking over and punching scott in the stomach
1: i when was drawn because i I remember seeing the storyboard i remember how it was drawn and uh no i didn't expect it to be that iconic that memorable but i knew we were trying to do something and In the context of everything that i was doing on that one show it didn't stand out to me that one punch it was just part it was part of a whole uh tapestry of stuff we were trying to get on the air you know um, the um the thing you have to remember is that we got an order for 13 episodes we had no guarantee of season two three four five and so as a director, I knew I only had one shot to do this thing right. And so I just – I was – as a director, I'm, I'm my, my mind is on the entire episode, not just the one moment. But I wanted to make – I had to make sure each moment was the best it could be. But I was like, I have to keep act one. I, you know, I got a whole – the whole show episode in my head to try and make it the best that it can be. So, no, I, to answer the question, I hope I did with that. No, I didn't – I didn't <laughs> – I didn't know that
2: moment was going to stand out. And the, fu- the funniest thing about the uh, the series, you know, you mentioned you had 13 episodes to shoot your shot, and you guys succeeded. And to the point where we've had, you know, 457 X-Men movies from Fox. We've had, you know, animated series afterwards. But your series seems to be the one that continues to stay as the most faithful of the franchise, and it's interesting that that's the case. And how does it make you feel knowing that that's the reaction that your series has had over the years?
1: Um, It feels very gratifying and satisfying, is what I would say, because um, when we, myself, Will, and Rick, and, and Eric, when we were working on the series, we had no feedback from the fans because the Internet didn't exist back then, if people even liked the show. We knew we were getting ratings, but we had no feedback that what we were doing was reaching an audience out there. Um, And it wasn't until, like, maybe the 12th episode that Eric's wife, Julia, went to Fox for some other reason, and um, she was, um, she asked, them, "Like, does anybody like the show?" And um, I'm, I'm trying to remember her name now. Her, uh, oh, I'll remember it in a second. But anyway, she, they took Julia to the hallway, and she, and they said, she said, "Look, you know, you know how you get? Maybe you get overflow of mail, and they have these little mail buckets. They put your mail in. Well, they have." Right. On this hallway, it was like a, it's like the first Indiana Jones film where, where, where they put the, uh, that, that uh, magic container. We had all these containers going back with mail from fans of kids, as far back as you could see, and then almost all the way to the ceiling. She said it was on both sides of the hallway. And that's when she came back and told us that the fans really liked us. I mean, and these are like postcards and, and letters that were sent to Saban that us working on the show, we had no idea. And it was like the 12th episode when we found out that people, that it was reaching an audience. And um, when we finished the 13th episode, the writers, myself, we knew we had done the best we could. The writers had actually moved on. Eric and and them had moved on to EXO Squad. And I was finishing up the X-Men and we all had our resumes. We had to, you know, we figured, okay, we did our job, we did the best we could. We're gonna move on to another show because we gotta pay, you gotta pay the rent, you know. And that's when they, we were about to deliver the last show when um, Fox said, "Look, you gotta pick up for season two, but you gotta change that ending because I ended the show with Scott and Gene saying they're gonna get married. What's gonna to happen to our kids, you know?" And it ends them on, on a blanket on a hill, sunset fade out. That was in the, the show, and so we had to you know, revise the ending so that it looks like they're on the, on the uh, sitting on a blanket having a picnic. Then you then you pull back and we manufactured in post this bogus monitor screen with blinking lights, and then you see a shadow come in, and it's sinister. Like I think Gene says. Um, who knows what the future is going to hold for us, Scott? And then Sinister says Sinister knows what the future holds. And he gives them, you know, maniacal laughter, and that's how you fade it out. But that was like a manufactured ending to season one. So it was, we, when we found out we had season two, was like, great, you know? And when they had to coax Eric Lewell back from Exosquad, because the team of people that were writing for the X-Men had moved on because they got to pay their bills too. And eventually they did come back and we got a season two out of it.
2: And one of the things about, you know, the overlast over, you know, overwhelming impact that the show has had, you know, I, obviously when you go to a comic convention, you'll see people dressed as the animated series versions. And I know of course it's the Jim Lee costume, but let's be honest here. Those costumes are more identifiable as X-Men, the animated series. Yeah, the Jim Lee design came out first. Big props to Jim Lee, but you guys made those looks for the characters iconic to the point where, you know, I am I collect the Marvel Legends figures. I want to get rogue. I'm not paying $120 for a $20 action figure because it's that outfit. But it gets me, you know, happy to know that, you guys had such an, a lasting impact with this interpretation to the point where people want the MCU versions to look like your version.
1: You know, that's, that's, that's so, that, that's so, makes me feel so good. And also um, I'd love for them to, uh, if they could follow what we did and, you know, the design wise and what we were doing with the animated, series, that would be great if they could do an animated, I mean, sorry, live action version with those characters, because those characters are so iconic now. They, the um, Gambit, when we, when we put him in a show, was pretty much a cipher. He didn't really have a, a, a background. He was kind of like he had been created about a year before the show. And so um, between Bob Harris, the writer, the story editor of the X-Men, and Eric Lewell, they, they, they were able to cobble together enough of his personality to make him, to make him, you know, something that they, we could, uh, they could write in the animated show. And I, I really think the, um, the animated show made Gambit very popular, you know? And, um, the fact that we had, you know, he has, he's the bad boy, you know, with, with, uh, Rogue. And that, that just worked really well. And, um, what was the other one? The, uh, oh, and the love triangle between, you know, Cyclops, Jean, and Wolverine. From what I remember, I think it was uh, Bob Skier, one of the writers, said that that relationship was hinted at in one panel of the X-Men, and it was never expounded upon from that point forward. And Eric, I mean, Robert, we took that and we created the love triangle, which made I think, helped the show quite a bit, having this tension between these three characters. And that aspect of that relationship, you know, it when it, it got... It migrated into the live-action movies, which was great. You know, it was something that we did, and it helped the, the live-action movies take off. Um, let's see if I can... I'm trying to remember. There's... Um, oh, and the... We tried to... I tried to reestablish that Xavier and Magneto were frenemies. Um, And I did that, I reinforced that that relationship in the last episode of the first season um, when it looked like Xavier's going to do a kamikaze run and kill himself to destroy Master Mole. And I added the scene of Magneto floating nearby him and creating a shield. So when Master Mode tried to kill kill Xavier, the shield protected him long enough for the Blackbird to hit Master Mode and, and destroy him. And they have this moment together of being frenemies and, then you know, Magneto flies off. Well, most of what I just described was not in the script. I made that up because I wanted to make that uh, connection between, between the two characters, like – you know, like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, that these guys had two different ideologies. They wanted the same goal, but went about it two different ways. And so that was something like, that I made sure to emphasize that because the, there was an earlier episode where Manny was just a bad guy. He wants to take the missiles and destroy the world. But in the 13th episode of the, of the last season, I wanted to make sure people understood what their relationship was.
2: And in regards to the, you know, original source material, you guys owe a lot of credit as well to the work, you know, not just of Jim Lee, but of Chris Claremont. And, you know, you do the convention scene now, and I imagine you've run into Chris at the cons. Has he ever said anything about the work you guys have done on the series?
1: We ran, the, the first time we ran into Chris out of all these many, many years, it was actually last year when we were doing conventionals. Myself, Eric, and his wife, and we actually met Chris for the first time. And uh, he he liked what we had done. I mean, um, we were happy because <laughs> we didn't, we had not we did not know you know what he thought of what we did because you know sometimes writers don't like you to take any any uh, leeway with what they've written. But no, he was happy with what we've done. It Was like that was. That was nice to know <laughs> after all those many years. You, you know, when you're when you're adapting a story from a comic book to a film, or you know, like animation or whatever, it you you're, you have to adapt it. You just can't take it word for word because it's a totally different media. And so, what Eric and did, Eric would do, and what I would do, was trying to we tried to match the original as close as we could but we had to make the the animated show accessible to millions and millions and millions of of people watching the show who have no idea of all the minutia. And so that's one reason I think we were successful, because we we were able to take the core meaning of the stories but make it digestible for the world. Because even though at the time I think Marvel Comics was selling maybe a million copies a month or something like that, that, if we got a million, million viewers on the X-Men, the animated series, we would have been canceled in a couple of weeks because we had to get 14, 15, 16 million viewers to stay on the air. And so in order to do that, you have to make it accessible to a non-fan to uh, get into the story. And so that's part of the adaptation process. And we were, like I said, very, very happy that Claremont was cool
2: with it. And it's very interesting because, you know, ever since the uh, Disney Fox deal went down, Claremont has been very vocal about the films. He's he's been there now, you know, because there's no film company making those movies anymore. He's been very brutal about them. So, yeah, definitely. You know, I think, you know, when he said it, he meant it, too, because you guys, again, did a phenomenal job bringing these characters to life and go, you know myself I'm going through the X-Men books still I'm up to I think 1989 right now but getting in there and seeing these stories watching concurrently and it's phenomenal seeing you know how you guys adapt to these stories you know taking the limitations that might have been in a comic and expanding upon them it's it's such a surreal thing to see and just phenomenal with how you guys pulled it off
1: no, oh, well, thank you. Um, and what I think would help quite a bit, like like I said before, was that um, the, between Eric and myself and Will, we were all on the same page as being uh, fans of the source material. And Will and I were real fanboys of the stuff, so we knew what we wanted to put on the air. And it's it, the X-Men was like one of those lucky productions where... Everybody's on the same page about what they want to do. I've worked, I've, I had directed other shows where that was not necessarily the case. And uh, this was real, this was a real one-time, one of the few one-time, you know, in a lifetime things where everything, everything just came together, you know. I mean, what we didn't have, though, was we didn't have a high budget and we had almost no time to do anything. So pretty much when I was working on the show, Um, I had basically one shot to do everything right the first time. Whereas I think like Batman at least had double our budget and double the time. So we had to, we were hauling butt to try and make our deadlines, make the shows. And then at the same time I was going through course correcting all the artwork and, you know, trying to make it like a, like a, Animated a comic book as best I could, you know? And so, yeah, I feel, you know, thank you. I'm glad everybody likes it and appreciated our efforts. And a lot of us, we did, you know, including the voice actors, we did not know how much people remembered the show until like the last, uh, I retired about three years ago and started doing conventions. And I was like, I, 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 Honestly, I was flabbergasted at how many people remembered the show so well and remembered it so fondly. And, and the voice actors were really caught off guard, too, because we were touring with um, Rogue, uh, Lenore, uh, oh. Wolverine, Caldott, uh, Beast, uh, George Busa, and um, I think we got Sinister in there, Chris Britton, and then we got, later on, we got uh, Gambit, uh, the other Chris. And um, they were, up in Canada, the X-Men was never a big deal. Down in the States, they were rock stars.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, that ties in with uh, getting the show and, and not having the budget and the time kind of thing. I see in the information that I had printed up here that this series debuted on Halloween of 1992. Was that a a target date? Was there again a time constriction that you had to have it? And, and however many already, you know, in the can, I guess maybe that whole first season to get to that no, point. No,
1: no, no. All of that was a huge, colossal bunch of uh, errors that were happening. I mean, we were th- normally back then a new show would debut in September, and we would have thirteen episodes starting from, from September forward. But the overseas company had done so many. Had made so many errors in production of quality that we, you know, myself and Will, we all complained to Margaret Lesh, who was the CEO of Fox, that we couldn't air this. You know, this is unairable, and she got on their ass and got them to do like, here's all the mistakes that they that they made in production. You got to fix this, and they were only able to fix enough. Of the of show one to air it on the date you just described mm-hmm. the end of the october and from october to january they were busy fixing the rest of the uh, part two and the other shows because when they got yelled at by the c by margaret who was the owner you know she was in charge of the channel they you know she put this pure god in them and they had to try and fix stuff and do it do it right and so um, that was the real reason why everything got delayed, was that they were effing up the stuff overseas, you know, and um, we, we wanted to get the show right. Now, the, it wasn't planned its way, but when the show debuted in January, you know, we had... They, they, we started from episode one forward. The benefit of opening with 13 episodes in January was that all of the other shows... Had already run through all of their episodes, and now they were in reruns. We were the only new show on air, Mm. and so all the eyeballs went to the X Men. It was like a lucky accident that, you know, people kids that didn't want to watch reruns they could watch the X Men and get into it because it was all brand new.
2: And how appropriate, by the way, is it to have the X Men debut on Halloween, and then over the next, you know years or months years decades that would be the one of the premier halloween costumes the x-men
1: <laughs> that's a happy coincidence
2: yeah you know, absolutely
1: we a lot of us did not believe kids would watch the x-men on halloween we said we we were thinking like oh god this is going to be buried the ratings are going to be terrible nobody's going to want to see this and they the ratings were great on halloween we we a lot of us at fox and at and you know I was at us working, we were at Groz Entertainment. That's actually the subsidiary that actually did the work. We were flabbergasted. Like, wow. The kids really watched it. And, and the ratings were good. We, we were quite surprised. And uh, thank goodness they did watch it.
0: <laughs> well, jumping back a minute to when you said getting it right, and this may have answered the question that I have here. This, if I read right, was one, if not the first show that maintained a continuous storyline through consecutive episodes it wasn't each individual episode was done and but a lot of them were saying to be continued never mind if it was a part one part two kind of thing which you knew had to be resolved later but did that come about between the three of you the fanboys that was like this is the idea if we're going to be true to the story to the comics we have to continue it we can't just wrap it up and then move on to the next one
1: yeah that was something that all of us wanted to do from Eric and Eric and all of us, we wanted to do continued stories and I think um, the one thing Margaret wanted us to do I think it was Margaret was that um, every episode should have a beginning, a middle, and an end, so that a non a not a person who doesn't know anything about the x men when they would see the episode, they would have uh, they could, they saw a story now the one thing she said we could do. You can, add, you can add, like, a B storyline or, or C story. You can ha- add all these other stories that don't necessarily conclude in that one episode. They kind of continue on like a thread between all the episodes. And so that's one thing that the, that the writing team did was connect everything together. Unless it specifically said part one and part two, um, most episodes had a beginning, a middle, and an end. There was a lot. The, the the subplots were the connective tissue between mm-hmm. the episodes.
2: Yep. Now before we wrap this episode up, Eddie, we got some questions on Facebook and Twitter. Well,
0: I'm Twitter challenged, so um, and I don't know if you recall, I did
2: I did post screenshots, Eddie. I did post screenshots.
0: Screenshot? Oh, well, on the page then. All right, because that's where I was first going is to the marvelous page. I was going to ask as I'm checking this, Larry, anything come to mind from your time doing the show that was a particular high. Special moment, remembering, or in a certain episode, or maybe something that was not a, a such a positive, or I, I don't know if that could have been better. Uh, you know, a higher low point of of your time and your work during the show.
1: I get well, the low point I guess was the unevenness of the uh, animation. I wish we would have had a, a supremely good budget for the first four years all the time, because you know it would have. It would have been made it would have made the series look very more consistent I mean we but the high point the good part is that um, the scripts are really good and uh, they, they they we elevated the, the writing of the series so that instead of writing down the kids we wrote up the kids so that um, initially if you're a kid you saw the laser beams you saw the explosions a couple of robots but when you watched it again as an adult, with old, not an adult, but at least older, you start catching more of the subtext, more of the uh, adult relationships, more of the, you know, how society was treating someone who's different. And um, I'm really proud that that aspect, we were able to write above a kid's comprehension to more of an adult comprehension, comprehension and that... Um, That has, I think that's helped the series, um, you know, look, it made it it look not too dated. Like it's still, you can look at it and go, it's still relatable and it it survived the time, the test of time. You know, it's like, what, 30 years ago now.
0: (laughs) Coming right up to it, yeah. Well, let me start uh, with one that I have on Facebook here. And, it's, and it could be a very difficult question from Aaron Ogawa, and he just says, favorite episode?
1: Final uh, decision. Episode one, uh, season one, episode 13. That's my favorite because I had no idea we were going to get a season two. And so <laughs> I put in the kitchen sink into the episode to make it as spectacular and as memorable as I could. And uh, there's other episodes that I that are my favorite, like Ro- Rogues Tale and other ones, the Time Fugitives. But I have to say the final decision because I, I that was my that was uh, that was shooting every uh, kitchen sink. I had no idea, so I, that would be the one.
0: Okay, the other one I see here from Facebook is from Jeremy Bagley, friend of the show, and I'll try to condense it down. What would be your take? On how certain characters were represented on the show, specifically Bishop and Storm, and perhaps any ideas you might have had for an X-Men show that might have contained a minority background.
1: Um, I'm not sure how to answer that. Mm-hmm. This question's about bit about some of the minority characters. Is that? Yeah.
0: How happy is... you were with the way they were represented, right?
1: Oh, I was quite happy because, um, you know. Um, Inclu- you know, the original like uh Days of Future Pass was Kitty Pride, but when they made it into the bit, they used Bishop who was another time traveling character, it was like, Wow, this is great. You know, we got you know, Bishop, he's a he's a badass with a giant gun. It made it more exciting with his with his character actually more than Kitty Pride. Um the one thing about minority characters, I, I was that part of the one of the um, mm-hmm. Um, we weren't able to use Thunderbird in the original that was in the original uh, X-Men because you know, he would have died and we would have created the first Indian, you know, Native American hero in a series. And we would have we would have offed him, mm. and, that, you know, and so we didn't put him into the series, which I would have liked. That's when we created Morph. Morph became the substitute for uh, Thunderbird dying in the original series that um, that was that, the original new X-Men series. I wish we could have Thunderbird into the series more at some point.
2: And with Morph, Morph got like he's a character made for the series and yet even he has a big fan following as well.
1: well. Yes, and we did not expect that at all. <laughs> <'Cause> he wasn't <laughs> around he wasn't around much and uh, the funny thing was like here we had a cast cast uh people the voice actors came in to read their parts and everybody knows they got 13 episodes to work on i think it's ron rubin reads his part and he reads about his character dying in the first episode he was like wait what he <laughs> <laughs> was so like everybody else knew they had 13 episodes they're going to get paid for 13 episodes so he got paid for like one or two and that's it
2: and you know going over to the uh the toy aspect of the series and the success of it you know toy biz released a figure of him and nowadays there's there's been quite a demand for morph to be released as an action figure in the uh X-Men animated you know series style and i for one want one i need a complete X-Men lineup
1: that would be cool well you know he's based upon the marvel character um changeling right really yeah, there's a, there's a character. I think X Men forty eight, forty seven. Um, he was a, a he. He could change his shapes. He was called Changeling, and um, Morph looked exactly like Changeling, but we couldn't call him Changeling because that's a DC, that's a, a Teen Titans character, Changeling. So yeah, we actually We were fighting. What we told Marvel: Look, you guys created it first, even though it was a one shot character. They said, no, we don't want to get into legal fights. Find another name. So he became Morph. But he's originally the change in the character from issue forty seven, forty eight, somewhere back there.
2: I never knew that. That's so nude.
1: Is it
0: true that they are planning on continuing X X Men T A S hello with new episodes on Disney Plus? Well that was a good read. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, before, we even a- before uh, Larry even answers the question, Larry answered my question. Is, is X-TAS like Mentos? Because I feel like that would be a refresh- refreshing flavor.
0: <laughs> a fresh maker times two.
1: Fresh maker, yeah. <sighs> uh,
0: so, um, uh, so, yeah. Yeah, so is it true that they're planning on continuing X-Men the Animated Series with new episodes on Disney Plus?
1: Um, to the best of my knowledge, I have no knowledge. I have... No, um, since being retired for the last three years, I'm, I'm not in contact with the companies anymore. Um, when I first got, when I first got contacted, I got contacted by um, Disney Plus to be, to, to join Twitter. I had never been on Twitter because they were doing these um, uh, view alongs or I think they call it something else. Where so basically, you know, a lot of people would watch episode an episode of the X-Men. And myself and, and Julia and uh, Eric, we get online and answer the questions for the kids who are watching the show and try and give them uh, any kind of information, any kind of backstory we could on their questions. But um, so we're hopeful that since Disney Plus contacted us and we, we've let them know of our availability, because that would be the only thing I would unretire for if they let us do more X-Men episodes. Um, and I, I tell people on Twitter, like, if you guys want us to try and do another season, you guys got to let them know. You got to let Disney Plus know and uh, Marvel in general. But that's how, if you want us to continue, it, it's all up to to the to the consumer. It's all up to the fans. You know, that's how we could get it. And done. when, and, uh, yeah.
2: And, you know, when the series launched on Disney Plus, uh, that was one of the most streamed shows. And when, you know, the announcement of Disney Plus was putting up on Twitter every, like, single show that was going to be on day one, your show was one of, like, the most shared, liked, and retweeted images of it. So there is absolutely a demand. There's got to be.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I've heard people give me information, I guess. Um, it's been number one for quite some time. Um, there's a huge interest in it, and, um, you know, we try and retweet to Disney Plus and everyone that we're, I, Eric's available, Julia's available, I'm available, and all of the cast members are still available, that if they were able to give us, like, either to do a one-off, like a you know an hour special or two, you know, or not necessarily a series, but, you know, if they want to, great. But if they just want to do a couple of one-off like DVD specials, we're available for them. We'd love to do it again.
2: And it's funny, too, because when Disney Plus, you know, launched their service, they gave, like, the little user icons. And, you know, the Marvel on day one was only represented by characters from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And then one day I'm on Twitter, and all of a sudden I see this graphic somebody made, and it goes new to Disney+, Plus, X-Men avatars, you know, icons, and I'm just like, oh, this is Photoshopped. I go into my app, and I'm like, oh, holy shit, I can have Cyclops now. And they were the the uh, animated series versions, essentially, and I'm just looking at it, and I'm like, wow. Again, the impact of these costumes and the way these characters look because of the work you guys did.
1: Oh. It's so amazing and, and satisfying. Yeah, I... I all I can say is to all the fans, thank you. you. know, Thank you for helping the show be successful. And, and uh, we, you know, we did our best to, to entertain you as best we could. And um, believe my inner fanboy is really happy to hear all this stuff, I tell you.
2: <laughs> yeah, you guys succeeded.
0: <laughs> all right, I've got some more Twittering going on here, guys. So we'll go to uh, at Aris3852 which says, how much did the running comic series plot lines get discussed to be part of the series plot? And also, thank you for you and the staff's awesome work.
1: Okay, um, we did discuss um, adapting stuff from the books, but we uh, because they wouldn't get, if they had told us, okay, you got picked up for three years, we could, we could have planned a whole bunch of stuff way ahead of time, but they would only give us a season of 13 episodes, and so we had to pick and choose, okay, what are we going to do with season two and season three? And we would go through and um, we would go through and, okay, what would work best for this series? And, um, yeah, it was, we, we would discuss it all in, in generalities, and then Eric would assign the writers to do specific episodes. And because I was involved, I, would, I was able to, like, um, create a, a visual connective thread between episodes so that um, it, there was always a, a connection that's going on throughout the series. I wish we would have been, you know, if they, if they had, would have had the foresight to say three years, oh, man, we could have done so many more stories. But we only, you know, it was a closed-in loop. You could only do so much. You could only plot a story so long, uh, a story arc for a series. So I think season two was sinister and Jean Gray getting married, stuff like that. Um, but, you know, you know, we can only wish. Yeah. <laughs> I can only wish we could have had the other, other option.
0: Yeah. And I think this, the, uh, this final Twitter one, and I do see a couple more besides that uh, ties in somewhat with that. It's at fallen lantern 92 to please ask, would you work on any new X-Men animated projects that Disney might decide to work on if offered?
1: Um, the answer to that would be absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, the one thing I'd love to do with, to work would be to work on the X-Men again. Um, I know the reality, though, is that when I was doing the original X-Men series, I pretty much I, ha- I made all the decisions. No, I didn't, I didn't have anybody second-guessing me, Um, and the reality right now is that we did the X-Men. There's going to be a lot of people that are going to be CC'd for anything I do. So it wouldn't be as spontaneous as it was, but I think they know that uh, we have their best interests at heart. I do as a fan to do the best I could and to uh, make the show as best best it can be. But um, that was one of the fun things about the original series is that because a lot of, except for Margaret Lesh and uh, one other executive there, pretty much they thought we were all doing everything wrong. And so pretty much they left me alone thinking the show was going the first season was going to be one and done. The, the benefit was they didn't micromanage me for the first season. So I got to do whatever I want. I called all the shots, you know, if Disney wants to do another one I know I can't do that <laughs> but I think I could work with the system and make it as make it a make the show really good again all right or do another another version of it that everybody would like
0: we uh, we have a question from Jeremy Foltz, and it says were there any characters off limits for the show
1: um yeah, Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't use Spider-Man. Um, basically, officially, you know, they, unless it was written into a contract. Cause see, Marvel didn't want to give the company that was producing the show was Saban. They didn't want to give Saban official rights to characters that, that he had not paid for. And so um, there are a lot of characters. Yeah, the Spider-Man was the, was the main one. Um, that we couldn't use, um, but pretty much because I was doing my I was doing my own thing, I could add, I, I added everything that I could to the cameos, and I did it without permission. I just said, oh, the hell with it. Let me just, I know this will work, and if they don't like it, it's on the air, it's too late. <laughs> so, but that was for season one, you know, I just pretty much uh, was, I was it. I was the person making all of the final decisions.
0: All right, the last one, and it's two separate questions, so I'll ask them separately. And it's from Ayindi I Rico, if I got that right. Was there any character or dynamic between characters that you or the crew found easier to write for?
1: Um, I that's that's more of a writer question, but I yep. think uh, for an artist, and I think the the relationship between you know Scott. Wolverine and Jean probably the easiest was like the most fun to write you know Rogue and Gambit was the second one um so I would, I would say those two relationships were mm-hmm. the first one prior with Jean and Scott and all that stuff right
0: all right and the last one were there ever any major disconnects between what you and the crew wanted to incorporate into the series and what the network mandated you could
1: um, probably, I'm trying to think of, uh, what do the networks want? Um, there was no disconnect only because they had no expectation and pretty much, um, we were, we, the fanboys were in charge of the show and we did the show that we did the show we wanted to do. And, uh, you know, um, and that's what happened. They, they really didn't think the show. You know, season one, they didn't. They thought we were doing everything wrong, and so we just, I just did the show I wanted to do. And the next two or three years after that, they left me alone because they knew I had a good instincts as to what was what made a good X Men show. And so did the staff that was with me, you know, uh, Mark Lewis and uh, Frank Scalacci and Frank Bruner. Uh, we were all fanboys, and so we just did the show we wanted.
0: All right. I think that's about what we have. That's great.
2: So before we go, one other thing that we want to mention. I believe uh Eric is going to be really, Eric and Julia both are putting out a uh X-Men the animated series art book this year and I uh, do you have any involvement with the book?
1: Yeah, uh Eric re-interviewed a lot of us, but but mainly what what happened was uh it's mainly the art of um and so we went into one of my storage units <laughs> that I I have, and we just dug up a lot of stuff. We actually found the the original X Men opening titles that I drew, and uh, so that's in the books. Um, Rick, I drew the the front and back cover of the mag of that of that book you're talking about, and Rick Holberg inked it, and um, a colorist from Marvel colored it, and so the book is full of. Artwork nobody's seen yet, especially like the opening titles, and so I, they we dug a lot of stuff out from my uh, <laughs> my storage unit. And um, it's I have I have a storage unit only because I'm too lazy to uh, go through it. I, I every every show I worked on, I put it in a box and I put it put it in the storage, and I just forgot it was there. And I, we, we 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 took a day, Eric and I. And his wife, and we just, it's like, we were like, you know, looking for dinosaur bones. We were going to, <laughs> to the place and finding stuff, you know. It's like, oh, look at this. Oh, look at this. Oh, I'm, I'm going, God, I, I didn't know I had that, you know, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, you're going to, there's a lot of stuff like that you'll see inside of the book uh, you put together. And,
2: and I believe, I believe it's, a, it's currently available for pre order on uh, Amazon.com, and I have mine pre ordered. And I cannot wait to see this. And hopefully you'll be able to be, you know, next year when hopefully the world is back to normal. We can see you come over to the East Coast and do a show. And, you know, I I want to have that book signed by every single one of the people involved with the show. So congratulations on everything. And I'm going to steal Eddie's line. Uh, Eddie, you say the continued success line. You go ahead. What?
0: Now it's not going to sound as sincere now, is it? Jeez. All right. So before we wrap things up, as Peter likes to say, but Larry, Larry Houston, thank you so How much you. for all your work those years. We're so happy we got to talk to you about this. And I, to be honest, full disclosure, am developing a, a, a um, not a renewed, but a new interest. Because at the time of the show myself, I was not into, you know, I, I was on my way to phasing out of Kitty Pride, phasing out of comic book collecting was the early 90s and and things for me were were going that direction so i missed the boat on the original x-men tas but thanks to the help of peter melnick i have the eric leewald book i have the volumes of the dvd so i am gradually like everything else catching up
1: that's cool that's cool glad you're glad you're on board again and and, you know disney plus did a lot to bring up to bring back interest in the show which was great
2: all right. So uh, before we go, also, Larry, how can people get a hold of you on social media?
1: You can contact me on um, Instagram, on Larry LarryTunes54. Um, on Twitter, it is um, X-Men Director, and I wasn't very creative. And the website is Larry-Houston.com. And that's, I have a website. So those those are the three places
2: that I exist. Very cool. Now, Larry, thank you so much for your time. And again, like Eddie said, wishing you nothing but continued success. Thank you. So, for The Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. Larry Houston. And I'm Eddie Wilson.
0: Excelsior! From the book of 2,500 questions, it's number 1,334, which reads... Was the mutant master who headed Factor 3? Was it a previously unknown mutant? Was it a human scientist manipulating mutants? Was it an extraterrestrial, or was it Magneto?
1: I know it was not Magneto.
0: Okay. The mutant,
1: I, yep. I, I visually, I can see the face. But I, can't, I'm, I, I, I know that face. I know the, the artwork, but I can't na- remember the name.
0: And they don't give us another name besides that. But, yeah, a previously unknown mutant, a human scientist manipulating mutants, or an extraterrestrial. We'll go down to those three. The mutant master who headed Factor 3.
1: I'd say that one.
0: I'm sorry, which one?
1: Wait, that, oh. um,
0: Previously unknown mutant or an extraterrestrial or the human scientist manipulating mutants?
1: Previously unknown. Previously unknown mutant? Okay.
2: I'm
0: clueless, so how about Peter?
2: I like the way Larry thinks.
0: Let's go with letter A. Previously unknown mutant? No. It says the answer is an extraterrestrial.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Well, Okay. Well, we've had this book be wrong before, but who knows if it can happen again. We'll only have to find Well, out. the truth is out there. <laughs> Somewhere. We want to believe. Yeah, I... Okay. Question number 850. What is Ragnarok? Let me read the answers. The Trial A of the movie. Gods. <laughs> Great movie. The Trial of the Gods. The End of the Norse Gods. The Home of the Honored Asgardian Dead or Hela's Realm of the Dead?
1: It's the End of Asgard.
0: End of the Norse Gods?
1: Yes. Yep. Norse gods, right? All
0: right. Let's go with B. I think we're all in unison there. That is correct. Okay. One for two. Let's wait for the computer little thingy here to to think about what number it wants to select. And... We will head there very shortly. So,
2: Number square. Number, what?
0: One hundred and five, six. Excuse me, I'm leaking. All right, one, five, six. And it says, who created Susan Richards' daughter, Valeria? Well, you take one Mr. part. Mr. Richards. No. Mi- yes. <laughs> <sighs> Here we go. Stan Lee and jerk, uh, Jack Kirby. Scott Lobdell. <laughs> Did you say jerk Kirby? It was kind of weird. Stanley and Jack Kirby, Scott Lobdell and Alan Davis, Chris Claremont and Salvador LaRocca, or Carlos Pacheco and Jeff Loeb. Susan Richards' daughter wow. Valeria.
1: Wow, well I know it wasn't. It's a it newer wasn't one. Lee and Kirby. So okay. That was done back after they they left the, Jack left the series. Um, what was the second choice?
0: Scott Lobdell and Alan Davis.
1: Alan Davis. Um, no, I don't, I don't know if Alan Davis is on a series then.
0: Right. Then there's Chris Claremont and Salvador LaRocca or Carlos Pacheco and Jeff Loeb.
1: Um, at this point, I know it's one of the last two. I'm I'm taking a guess that it's, uh.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to,
1: I'm trying to, i
0: I'm trying to fathom when, when, like what issue she came into being kind of thing
2: got to be the 90s and Lope was involved in the 90s
0: you mean the 1990s are the issue
1: number no um i don't know you want to pick it's one of the last two either all
0: right so we'll, let's go with peter's we'll go with instinct go ahead peter's melnick sense is going off letter d no yeah. it is it's actually it's c claremont and la rocca
1: claremont created a wow
0: that's what it says all right, let's go for a fourth and then we'll have to go, you know, I call it an even split if we get that far. 2108. 2108. Oh, okay. Who is Jacob Goldstein? Choices are a member of Dracula's search party for the Chimera, a distant ancestor of Jack Russell, the Blue Bullet, or the Gollum of the 1940s in The Invaders. Who was Jacob Goldstein?
1: You got... Wow, you got me on that. I have no idea. I'll
0: go through it again. A member of Dracula's search party for the Chimera, a distant ancestor of Jack Russell, the Blue Bullet, or the Golem of the 1940s in the Invaders. I'm blue somewhere bullet. Be- Blue Bullet. I was somewhere between yeah, that or the distant ancestor of Jack Russell. But Peter's saying Blue Bullet. Well, his answer was wrong last time. Um How dare you? My gut jumped out at B, distant ancestor of Jack Russell. And I say, no, it's not B. And it is the golem of the 1940s and the invaders. Oh, wow. Exactly. That's what we say. One for four. (laughs) One for four and all for one. Three out of four is bad. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I think we're done now for real. Thank you. Okay. (laughs)